I'm Jesse LeBlanc. I'm Kat Miller, and this is Vines and Wines. We created this podcast to share our favorite activity of discussing financial regulation while drinking wine. Each episode, we dive into the lessons learned from a recent disciplinary action. So grab a glass and let's dive in. Just a couple of quick disclaimers. Nothing we say here should be construed as legal advice. We're not lawyers. However, we do have collectively more than 30 years of experience in the industry. And while our opinions are our own, let us know if anything here resonates with you. We'd love to help you out. Lastly, we dive into cases to discuss the lessons learned and best practices. Nothing we say should be taken as being critical of the firm that is at the center of this case. So Kat, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a, it's been a great day. We were really productive. We're just trucking along. Yeah, we were really productive today, but you know what the best part is, is that now I have a glass of wine in front of me and we get to talk more about regulation, which I know sounds really lame to people, but I'm really excited about it. Um, So can I tell you what's even more exciting than that is that I found a bottle of uh, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, which you know is my very favorite, at the discount grocery store for $7. And I don't know the name of it. I'll have to bring that one next time when we do another podcast, but yeah, I'm super excited. So I've got my Willamette Pinot, which is just making my day even better. That's amazing. Uh, I, on the other hand, don't have a car today. So I am drinking the finest cab served at the gas station. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it's just a little walk away. So definitely enjoying my gas station wine. That's See, nothing wrong with that. So the case we're discussing today was brought against Barclays and was released in the August 2022 FINRA Disciplinary Action Brief. So if you're not aware, Barclays seems to have been, unfortunately for them, in the regulatory crosshairs quite recently, but this action was particularly focused on trade confirmation and supervision. We just want to touch on a few of the rules that we're going to discuss, because we'll probably use the rule reference number throughout the conversation, and just thought it would be helpful if we go ahead and define which rules we're going to be talking about. The findings in this, in this particular AWC were for 10B10, which is the SEC's trade confirmation rule. It also cites FINRA 2232, which is just FINRA's trade confirmation rule, and a few other rules out there that you'll see if you read the findings have to do with books and records. And finally, you always happen to notice there's typically FINRA rule 2010, which is just basically saying that you have to observe high standards of commercial honor. So as a result of all of these infractions, the firm was actually fined $2.8 million. The one other thing I would want to call out is that there are some findings in this particular AWC that relate to to Reg NMS violations. We're not going to touch on those for the purposes of this discussion. We're really just focused on the trade confirmation issues. So high level, the case really focuses on the firm's obligations to generate confirmations accurately, but as well as how to supervise those confirms to ensure accuracy. So I think we had two main takeaways. And I think the first one really focuses on the fact that Starting as far back as 2008, the firm had a number of programmatic and systematic issues that caused inaccuracies on the trade confirmations. Yeah, according to 
the enforcement action when you read it, the failures, they had over, they had approximately 11 underlying issues that went undetected for at least five years, including both technology and also misunderstanding the regulation. So I think one of the interesting things to me about this case was just really thinking about how were these issues identified and how did they get flagged? So you have to think, any of the issues that were cited, which the, again, there were there were a litany of them, but we're talking about having the incorrect capacity stated on the confirm, incorrect prices, incorrect market centers, a variety of different just data fields that would populate incorrectly. I, I have to wonder, and, and you know, fortunately, these AWCs aren't super specific on this, but were these issues identified in the testing process? Were they identified post-trade? How were these actually brought to light? And what is the process that the firm has to identify issues of this nature? Yeah, so they went over several different types of inaccuracies or misunderstandings, those being, first of all, inaccurate capacity. So before we start talking about capacity, let's explain to you what that means if you're not familiar. Capacity is whether a broker-dealer is acting as agent or principal for the trade. And even though it can get a little bit more complex than this, easy way to think about it, if they're acting in principal capacity, the broker-dealer is using their own inventories to buy or sell those particular securities. Yes, yeah, so you have to think about how that's coded into a system and how if there are changes made to that kind of a coding to generate trade confirmations based off of that logic, how are those being tested and how is that actually being validated? Uh, correct. And in this particular scenario, they actually discovered this error back in 2016. They knew there was a programming issue, but decided at that point not to go ahead and fix it because they were going to actually transition over to a different order management system. But it, there was a delay in getting it set up, so it prolonged the amount of time that incorrect trade confirmations were going out to clients. And I can, that, that's such an easy pitfall for firms. Bringing on systems is just not as easy as what, you know, you might think it is. You can have so many different hurdles, either with the vendor or with your own side, that even with best intentions, we can see how this could easily happen. That being said, clients need to be able to have the ability to have all the information on a trade. So when you think about the client's best interest, that in that case, it should probably become more of a priority for that client. Now, does a client know the difference between principal and agent capacity? Maybe not necessary. I know personally when I was setting for the seven, this was the hardest topic for me to understand. I seriously cried every time I read this chapter or this section, read it a countless amount of times and was convinced I was going to fail the exam because I could not understand what agency and principal capacity meant. Meant nothing to me. The second you put me in the back office and I start working hands-on, I'm a hands-on learner, immediately it made sense. You know, one other thing just to call out is I, I think we've all been in those meetings as well when we're talking about system changes and trying to make those transitions to a new system that you're going through a list of prioritization and you're going through the list of things that need to get done for a firm. And it's very easy in those conversations to just brush past small, what see, what seems like an administrative change to add something to the chain, trade confirm or to do something that would just seem like it's more of a back office function and not something that's going to be a high priority item for a financial advisor or for a trader to see. Right. And in this particular scenario, now this is just speculation because it doesn't des designate it exactly in the enforcement write-up, but inaccurate capacity, most likely his firm was acting in agency capacity, uh, but reporting the trades as riskless print. 
And those for those people, they you're basically going in and out, but you're still utilizing the firm's inventory. So it's very similar to an agency capacity that you're working with the street, but it could very much be that the system was just uh, picking you know, the wrong thing. And actually back in 2017, the FINRA findings report indicated that was a hot topic of order capacity, that people just weren't understanding or designating correctly agency capacity versus riskless print. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, it goes without saying that what, what I think is the most challenging thing about trade confirmations, as unsexy as they are, is that trade confirmations are low-hanging fruit. Everything on there is very prescriptive. It's very defined in the rules. My, my favorite statistic to quote about an MSRB rule is that if you actually print out Rule G15, which governs trade confirmations for municipal securities, it's 37 pages long. And that is 37 pages of specific guidelines that say what needs to go on a trade confirmation. That's so prescriptive. This is, the, this is almost a gotcha for the regulators. They're going to come and they're going to look at your trade confirmations. And if you don't have something right, it's a really easy gotcha technique for them. Right. Well, and that leads to one of the other interesting points was the firm misunderstood one of the regulatory guidances. And this had to do with average price. And what happened, how I understand reading it, with this firm is that they were marking single execution trades as average price trades. And again, for those who don't know necessarily what an average price trade is, is if you put in an order and you have multiple executions, we could go ahead and print that the average price so you don't have a whole bunch of different prices printed on the trade confirmation. And in that case, the firm was running all their trades through an average price account, which was then applying the average price coding to every single trade, or at least that was my interpretation. And understanding, again, how that works, it, it's such an easy miss that unless you have a really great testing policy in place and a team that understands what the rules are, this could easily slip through the cracks also. So I think that's an excellent segue into our second point, which is supervisory systems and how you're actually supervising for this type of activity. So I know a lot of firms have different processes for these. I, I guess the first question a firm who may be listening to this might want to ask themselves is, do you have a supervisory procedure on comfort reviews? If you don't, you should um, maybe call us if you need some help with that. But that would be the first place to start. But I think a lot of firms that we've heard from like a best practice perspective have a full committee actually going through their trade confirmations on a regular basis to actually review, review for these. That was one issue with this particular case that it doesn't seem like that was a practice that the firm had for a number of years. It sounds like they've since instituted that, but that was that was one of the issues that was cited by FINRA that there was not really an, an adequate supervisory structure in place to monitor for issues or inaccuracies as it related to the trade confirms. Yeah, when you read the enforcement, it basically said they had no supervisory review of confirmations and basically until FINRA kind of pointed it out in multiple exams. And then once they did create a procedure, it wasn't adequate. And we can go into a little bit of details about both of those throughout this conversation. But the, like, let's just go back and talk about the committee itself. And what are you looking at? Who's a member? Like, it's so time consuming. You need so many different people that should be a part of your committee all across the organization. It shouldn't just be trading. It shouldn't just be, it definitely shouldn't just be compliance. 
It needs to just be operations. Everybody needs to be involved. And when everybody's involved, let's take a step back. Like, what does that mean? Who knows what? Does everybody read the rule? Does everybody understand? Compliance doesn't understand how systems are done. Ops knows the systems, ops knows the rule. There's such a weird balance going through it all. And as a reminder, not one in most places, not one person's job is to manage the trade confirmations. This is a bunch of people who have a ton of work and a ton of things that are being thrown at them and fires constantly happening, that this is such an easy piece to push back on to the back burner. Right. Well, I think if I'm being totally honest, I think that's a lot of times how it gets settled onto ops to actually manage the process. It's like, well, nobody else has time to do it. So ops, here you go, you take it. And you're right. Like it's not one person in ops. One person in ops is not going to have the knowledge or the bandwidth to be able to handle that in a way that is sufficient or satisfactory. Like this is an every man type of game and everybody needs to be able to participate and say, when is there an issue or when is there something potentially wrong with the trade confirmation? And I have to remind everybody, like, yeah, if, if this almost always falls on ops or the business unit, right? They should be the ones going through. They're the one that understands the product, et cetera. Like they should know. But an ops person doesn't get paid to know the rules. An ops person is the lowest paying jobs out there. So how do you know, there's always this expectation that ops is going to have to know all the rules. No, that's not fair. Well, and let's be honest, who wrote who wrote the policy that the ops person is now being required to actually supervise to? They're the ones who are going through that that procedure. And, and doing the things that compliance has likely set out the task for them to accomplish. It's hard for them to reconcile that with limited resources and potentially limited training and limited information for them to go off of. And if they're not being provided enough people to help bounce off those ideas, and if there's not enough stakeholders who are interested in sitting in those committee meetings, they're just going to be set up to fail. And as a result, the firm's going to be set up to fail. I absolutely agree with that, Jesse, because in the end, we always have to remember, and this is a common theme you'll always hear from trade lions, is that we have to work in synergy. All the departments have to work in synergy. The ops can't be expected to be the person that knows the end all of the rule, but ops should also be held accountable. They should at least know the rule and be a part of it. Compliance should be giving that guidance and giving that oversight and helping out and not just saying, oh, well, ops should have done it. But I also think the business has a has a really valuable role to play in this as well, because they need to come in as the subject matter experts, the ones who understand the products and can be able to provide that expertise and guidance when it's appropriate. One of the things that firms should consider is creating some sort of a checklist or a guideline to hold themselves to when they're conducting these confirmation reviews. If this is something that you are unsure of how to approach, or you maybe don't have, or you need a little bit of oversight or additional guidance for we can certainly help with that. So please reach out and let us know if that's something you need some assistance with. The other piece in this case that I think is really relevant and one of the most interesting pieces of the entire AWC was that FINRAS explicitly came out at the very end and called out the sample size for the quarterly confirmation reviews that the firm did and called them explicitly insufficient. And I think we really need to hone in on that piece for a minute here, because you rarely get that kind of guidance. More importantly, the way that they phrased it, it wasn't so much that it was insufficient in the past. It's that it is currently insufficient, and they need to do more. 
let's go back and explain that real quick for those who haven't read the AWC. So we mentioned that this particular firm did not have any type of supervisory procedures at all. In 2020, they, they implemented something. And in 2020, basically what they were looking at, and, and, and most of these components that we were talking about is equity. So I'm going to assume that the AWC was only focused on the equity part and, and, and they were doing stuff for other products too, but we're, that's just an assumption. That being said, I think they were doing, pulling 18 confirmations a quarter and where FINRA calls that out, they're like, okay, great, thank you. You put something in place, but that is completely insufficient because they had what, 10 million equity confirms during that quarter and they felt definitely that 18 was not sufficient. It really makes you step back though and think, well, gosh, what is the right sample size, right? How many firms go through this? Again, it comes into that balance of everybody who's going over and looking at these conferences. This isn't their full-time job. They are doing other things. How much capacity do they have? How many are the right? Clearly 18 out of 10 million was not what Fender was looking for. I think when you look at a lot of case law, there is some standard that has been cited in a number of cases of somewhere between five and 10% being sort of a relative sample size. I'm not sure that that really applies in the case of confirms. I mean, can you imagine just doing five to 10% of 10 million trades? It's, it's, it's just not practical as much as I'd love it to be. It's just not, it's not scalable, but certainly 18 is not a sufficient sample size. If you're not already considering this in the course of having read this AWC and you're not already considering changing your sample size, you probably should be. There's definitely a, a, a heightened level of scrutiny on this as a result of this particular case. And it's clear. I mean, this is this is the definition of guidance by enforcement. This is the guidance that we're going to get. Just to summarize our major takeaways from the case, the first has to do with the variety of programming and systematic issues that were flagged and not yet addressed. Firms should really think about how these issues are identified and making sure that they have a proper escalation process in place to make sure that these things are getting addressed. So the second major takeaway has to do with the supervisory structure. Take a look at your firm's policies and procedures and make sure that they're accurate. Do you have a confirm committee process? If you don't, maybe you should consider forming one. And really take a look at the sample size. This particular case really explicitly states what FINRA doesn't think is accurate. Maybe you need to reevaluate and consider what is accurate for your firm. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Vines & Wines is a part of Trade Alliance, a consulting firm for broker-dealers and investment advisors with trading, operations, and compliance. Though these episodes are intended to be casual and a fun take on discussing regulation, our consultants are serious when it comes to helping you out.